Okay. All right, well, we're getting all settled back in. Hope everybody enjoyed their lunch. Um, <clears throat> our next uh, presenter comes to us from Cornell University, where he works with the USDA ARS at the R.W. Hawley Center for Agriculture and Health, as well as working with the Department of Plant Breeding and Genetics at Cornell. Um, he received his bachelor's degree in biology from Haverford College in Pennsylvania. Uh, from there, he went on to get his master's in plant science at the University of Maine, and then on to get his PhD at the University of Minnesota in plant breeding, uh, working under Jim Orff and uh, Nick Jordan. Uh, his work at the USDA involves work with quantitative genetics, as well as development of methods for using DNA uh, markers and genomic selection to increase efficiency in small grain improvement and facilitate the usage of these methods into the public small grain breeding programs. Uh, here to talk to us about genomic selection for crop improvement, please help me welcome Jean-Luc Janik. All right. Thanks, Tom. Um, and, and thanks to the students for inviting me. It's exciting to be uh, at the University of Nebraska. Um, I, I love uh, Steve as a, as a as a colleague, he's a really excellent colleague, and actually one of my inspirations to start grad school um, was Chuck Francis, who's also here. So um, glad to be here. Um, so I, I actually changed my title. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a contrived title, and so, so genomic selection for uh, crop improvement is a bit worn out as a title by now. Um, and so I was thinking, okay, so how can I make this relevant to the grad students who've invited me? And um, so what I want to try to do is, is think a little bit, not just about some uh, genomic selection results, but um, attempts to, to illustrate how the process of thinking about this thing um, has occurred to me. Um, and so, you know, you guys are all engaged in a process of science and thinking. And, um, you know, I don't know if it'll be useful or not, but here goes. So, right, so, so really these people who have helped me I, I view as the most important thing. So I'm going to start out with, uh, with the acknowledgement. So the, the, the top uh, bullet are people who are in my lab. Um, they think a lot about these stuff, this stuff a lot. And of course, Mark Sorrells isn't in my lab, but I, I collaborate with him on an ongoing basis. Um, and I'll, I'll try to highlight, too, when I'm showing you um, results that specific people uh, have, ha have generated. Um, I'll show you some barley results that are from Kevin Smith, but, but Aaron Lorenz, and so this is a postdoc and a student of his, Aaron Lorenz has contributed a lot to that. Um, a little bit of results from Oates, um, so for, with people from Iowa State and Paul Scott's with ARS also. And then a little bit from Wheat um, in collaboration with Simit and also Jesse Poland, who is, is managing to, to work on many different crops simultaneously. He's a pretty amazing guy. Um, and then finally, I, I want to acknowledge, um, you know, the people who are paying my salary, the people who fund my research, um, Cornell, just excellent colleagues, and also we get some funding from the Gates Foundation. Okay, so um, by now everybody should know what genomic selection is, but I'm going to give you my take on it. It's pre pretty similar to stuff that, that Stephen talked about. Um, just so that it's not a, a purely theoretical exercise, I'm going to show you some actual data. Um, the, the best stuff is from barley, some from wheat. Um, and then, like I said, I want to try to illustrate a bit of a thought process. So, so it's a bit of a, an exercise in navel-gazing, and um, I'm sorry about that, but there you go. You, you invited me, so uh, you'll have to take responsibility. Um, so, so I want to talk about three, three aspects of genomic selection. Uh, the one I view most important, as most important, is, is this issue of accelerating the breeding cycle. Um, I think it also offers important opportunities for managing the breeding program, uh, the, the population, and, and what's in it. And then, you know, many times uh, already uh, today, people have talked about the fact that, that the phenotypes are the most important thing. And, um, and I'll just reiterate that and, and sort of try to think about how you squeeze the most juice out of the investment that you've put into phenotyping. And then the last thing is, you know, a bit of friendly advice for for grad students based on my experience and, and where I think this is all going. All right, so um, this is a slide that you've probably seen or you've seen the figure in uh, crop science, but the idea is that you have uh, a training population which has both um, genotypes and phenotypes. There are many different types of models um, that you can use. 
that lead to a prediction of the phenotype from the genotype. You come along with new breeding materials. Uh, you don't take the time to phenotype it, you just genotype it. Um, and you use the model then to calculate what are called these uh, genomic estimated breeding values. And then you make selections on that. So this process of making selections is much like making a selection on a phenotype, except that it's just a prediction. That's the basic thing. Um, if you want to think about it from a statistical point of view, um, what, what we have is sort of uh, a situation where we, we observe uh, a state, and in our case, it's marker states. And then, you know, so the genotype, nature does something with that. Um, it's in a black arrow, if not a black box. And we observe, you know, outcomes, so phenotypes. And there's two things you could possibly do with that. You can seek to understand it. So, so to understand how nature turns X into Y, you want to identify the causal inputs and uh, reason about those, make inferences. But in, in breeding, really what we want to do is just predict what this phenotype is going to be. And the bottom line is whatever works to make this prediction um, is what you want to use. And that's kind of the state of genomic selection now is um, make predictions and don't worry too much about why uh, you know, a particular phenotype occurs. All right, so, so does this work? Um, so the, the, the first example I want to give you is from Barley's, from Kevin Smith's program. Kevin is a great collaborator, really forward thinking, and, and amazingly able to adopt and these ideas um, quickly in his program. So uh, it's kind of a head-to-head -head comparison between genomic and phenotypic selection, although not quite. So. Um, the, all of the lines that I'm about to talk about were evaluated in 2011. Um, the crosses from phenotypic selection occurred uh, in 2008. So they're, they're crosses that happened earlier than the crosses that were used for genomic selection. So there's a little bit of a disparity in terms of the source population that these, these two things came from. Because the genomic selection goes faster, and that's a, its property, um, the parents that were used were sort of one year further along. Um, but so, okay, so then in the phenotypic selection, some evaluation occurred in um, plant rows, so head rows of the type that Stephen showed us. Um, it, it's a system that allows you to do some evaluation of, um, particularly of diseases. Um, so, so for Fusarium head blight, which I'll show you, uh, they inoculate these, these head rows. Um, in contrast, the genomic selection part was, was done on, on F3, plant, uh, F3 plants that were genotyped and then sent to winter nursery for seed increase so that they could be evaluated in 2011. So the genomic setup is like this. Um, so it's Minnesota, upper Midwest. Uh, this is the size of our training population. The, the, the um, lines came from three different programs, uh, Minnesota, North Dakota, and Bush Ag. Um, and they were all evaluated for, you know, pretty well, three years, two locations, um, uh, about 1,500 SNPs. To genotype the progeny, we picked out 384 that were optimized for poly polymorphism and information content and for their distribution across the genome. And then um, we did a, a very similar procedure to what uh, Mike Gore described with the nested association mapping of taking the SNPs that were on the parents and projecting them down to the progeny based on segregation of those 384 SNPs. So we had, um, you know, 1,400 progeny from a number of crosses, and that's the material that we're working with. So here, here are outcomes, and I'm, I'm showing uh, histograms for phenotypic selection versus genomic selection, Fusarium head blight, which is a disease that is thought to be fairly polygenic, and yield. So, so these are all uh, given on the x-axis as a percentage of some uh, well-known checks. Um, so in this case, disease, you want a low number because um, we're, we're showing disease severity. And you can see, see two things. First of all, the, the average uh, percentage for genomic selection is lower than that for phenotypic selection. So our selections worked. The other thing is that there are a certain number of escapes uh, on the phenotypic side where it looked like the head row was clean, but basically the infection just didn't take. So, and you don't have that on the genomic side. So I, I view that as success. And, and in yields, it's fairly clear also. Um, first of all, the, the mean is, is higher. And also you just have these, um, some of the lines that are just dramatically better uh, coming from the genomic selection 
program relative to the phenotypic selection. I should say that, you know, these hedgerows, it's not like you can really evaluate yield, so it's not like much, if any, selection pressure was put on um, yield in the phenotypic, on the phenotypic selection side, whereas some selection pressure was put on on the genomic selection side. But again, you know, you move faster and you got better results. So in the public sector, this is sort of the best we have in terms of, uh, so far, in terms of validation of the whole idea. Okay, what's happening? Okay, so I wanted to give you uh, an example from wheat to show that it's, it's not always this, this rosy and, and doesn't always work this great. Um, so SIMIT uh, has this semi-arid wheat yield trial, SAWIT. Um, so we have many years of data. They send out to these international nurseries a certain number of lines every year, so we end up having a fair number of lines. A lot of trials, go, or a lot of phenotypes, in other words, have gone into this evaluation. And we used um, genotyping by sequencing. So it's a very interesting sort of set of markers. We have very many markers, but on any given line, uh, a very high fraction of the markers are missing. So it's, it's a sort of twofold uh, attempt at working this is partly to see if this kind of data can work for us and partly to see if this kind of marker system can work for us. So um, this is the result. Um, so First, uh, the, the, the accuracies here are given as a correlation between the prediction and a phenotype. So the one thing I want to say about that is that it's downwardly biased relative to the correlation of interest, that correlation being the correlation between the prediction and the true breeding value. Okay, we don't have access to the true breeding value. We don't know it. There's error in the phenotype relative to the true breeding value. So this correlation is downwardly biased. Okay, And you want to do it by cross-validation. So what this means is you want to build your prediction model using lines that you do not use, or without using any lines that are in your validation set. Okay, so you, one way or another, you, you take your, your um, overall population and you remove one set of lines that later on are going to be your validation set, and you train the model on the, on the, other, on the rest. We tried two different ways of doing this cross-validation. One way is sort of the simplest and is represented by this blue line that's horizontal, where we did um, random cross-validation. So we took the population as a whole. We split off a 20% chunk that was going to be the validation at random, picked at random, and then trained the population on the rest. And um, you know, this is the, the accuracy that we got, which is great. It's sort of um, 0.55. Um, it's very good. So then the red line, what we did in contrast is we uh, didn't split the lines at random, but we split them by year. So, for example, in 2000, what we're trying to do is we're, we're taking the lines that came from, came from before um, 2000, we're using them as the training population to predict um, the performance in the year 2000. So it's a little bit more realistic in terms of what you would be doing in a breeding population. And there's a couple things you can notice. For, for one thing, the red line is almost always underneath the blue line, okay? so it's more difficult when you do something realistic than when you do this random separation. The other thing that's obvious is that there's huge variability here. Um, so some of it is because there's variability in how accurate the phenotype is. So, so different years have different uh, heritabilities. Um, there may be a component of G by E, but I'm quite sure that there's a component that we don't understand. There's, there's some of this bumping up and down that we just don't know what the origin is. And, and a case in point is that you know, here we have very low predictive abilities, and here we have very high predictive abilities, even though the training populations for, for this year is very similar to the training population for this year. So um, there's a bit of a mystery to all this, and, and, I, and while those barley results are, are very exciting and, um, you know, make me excited for the future and, and, and moving forward with this, um, I don't want to oversell it. Okay, so you've actually seen this picture already. Um, but this is sort of the general picture that I, that I use for how I think of genomic selection. And um, so this is the first bit of friendly advice, is to try to create as, as comprehensive and clear a picture of, of your situation as you can, and then use it to think about um, where different research areas might be useful. So um, in particular, so, so there's each research area sort of circled. The classic genomic selection problem is how do you develop a better model for predicting uh, performance? And th there's plenty of um, statistical uh, approaches that we can try. 
Um, one that I'm going to talk to you more about is accelerating the, the breeding cycle. So there's no, there's no phenotyping in this breeding cycle, and I think that's relevant because it enables you to um, accelerate it to the maximum extent. Um, there's the actual se selection procedure where, yes, we want to pick the lines that we think have the best phenotypes, but we also want to manage the population. And I'll, I'll show a little bit what I mean by that and, and justify it. Um, there's uh, phenotyping the lines that are most informative. So in phenotypic selection, you just want to phenotype the best lines and get rid of the worst lines and, and never worry about those worst lines anymore. But in genomic selection, it's certainly possible that some of those poor lines have information that might be useful to you. So it's something worth thinking about is once you have all the genotype information on those lines, which one, which line, in which lines are you going to invest the effort to um, actually phenotype them? And then the last thing that I also want to talk about a bit um, is how do you go about phenotyping? How do you go about maximizing the information that you get out of phenotypes? Okay, so, so what I want to show here is this idea of, okay, so you think of that, that accelerating the breeding cycle is interesting, and then what can you do? I think it's worth taking time to sit back and really push that thought as, as far as you can. So I'm going to illustrate that a little bit with my own process of um, to getting to where I am now of, of thinking about um, uh, accelerating the breeding cycle. So I started out with, uh, I was the oat breeder at Iowa State University, and this was more or less um, my breeding cycle. I would make crosses. It would take about five years between inbreeding, doing a number of evaluations before I would um, come up with those lines that I was confident in would be good parents. Um, and then my first thought was, oh great, I'm going to replace some of that early generation testing with um, selection on a prediction. Um, so I could reduce my, my, my breeding cycle from uh, five years to three years. Um, so, and then, and then finally, so these are all older slides, and you can see the sort of relatedness of these slides to this ultimate picture that I ended up with. But so then finally I have a, a two-year cycle where I inbreed kind of in one year, and I select and make crosses in a next year, and I have, I've removed any kind of evaluation from this cycle. Um, so all I want to say about this is that it illustrates that, uh, that it takes time to think about the, the, the processes and, and really push them forward. So do take time to think. Um, don't just work. Take time to think. Um, okay, so, so back to this picture. And uh, again, um, wanting to accelerate the, um, the breeding cycle. And I just want to show you sort of the, the picture that I have now of how this works. Um, so I imagine a, a sort of standard phenotypic selection cycle that, that, so now I'm thinking a little bit more about corn in this example, but how fast could you, could you go through this cycle? And I'm imagining three seasons per year, so the crossing and the inbreeding would take one year, and then you'd do a couple of years of phenotyping. So in, in total, it would take you three years. Um, and then I want to compare this to genomic selection, where you know it took me a while to figure this out, that you didn't need to um, inbreed before you did the genotyping, necessarily that inbreeding is a necessary step for phenotyping uh, for evaluation, but inbreeding isn't a necessary step for, for genotyping and making a prediction. So if you skip the inbreeding, and of course you're going to skip the phenotyping, you can do um, three cycles per year. So that would be a ninefold acceleration relative to um, a breeding program that already is going pretty fast. So what does this do? Um, so this is the standard, um, the, the breeder's equation for the response to selection, where you have a standardized uh, selection differential, you have an accuracy, so this is the correlation between your selection criterion and the true value of, the true breeding value of um, the lines that you're, you're selecting, and then there's an additive genetic standard deviation. And um, so I've, I've made a little comparison of, of phenotypic versus genomic selection. And, and the, the particular numbers of progeny that you might start with and the numbers of lines that you select are, are somewhat arbitrary. I tried to do a bit of a budgeting exercise to come up with these numbers. Um, but 
the point is that I imagine with phenotypic selection having a much higher uh, selection intensity, but I can only do it once every three years. Whereas with genomic selection, I have a much lower selection intensity. I'm concerned about drift, so I want to select, you know, given that I'm going to do nine cycles, I want to select more individuals to, to reduce the amount of drift. Um, this is the standardized selection intensity for one cycle, but I get to do nine cycles, okay? So if you, if you look at the cumulative selection differential, it increases about six-fold um, between phenotypic and genomic selection. So that means that relative to, to Joe Kieschel's objective of, of doubling the, um, the response per year, given that, that the standardized selection intensity is increasing six-fold, I could have a three-fold decrease in the accuracy and still get there, right? So I'm not saying that, that's a, that that would be a good thing to have a three-fold decrease in the accuracy, but it would be possible and still get um, quite good uh, responses. Um, and so, so, so then I wanted to just sort of um, push this a little bit further and, and, and entertain the notion that, that you could automate the breeding cycle completely. Okay, so in other words, humans would be taken out of the breeding cycle. It would all be done by machines. And there's, there's clearly a lot that machines do already, right? Um, they chip seeds, you know, they, they put the seeds in 96-well plates or whatever to be re retrieved later. They can do the genotyping. They can, all this is robots. The only part of this that might be a little tricky is making the crosses. But, you know, robots are pretty, robots are pretty good, and you, you can give robots good eyesight. You can give them very fine motor skills. It wouldn't surprise me that eventually the whole breeding cycle is in the greenhouse and humans don't intervene. They just, I mean, they make the decisions. They control the process, but, um, okay, so that's, that's one, one way of pushing it. And again, so we've actually already seen this bit, but um, obviously the companies are making progress in this direction. Um, and then the, the other thought is that if you really want to accelerate the, the cycle, why not do meiosis in vitro, right? I mean, so, so the, um, the bottleneck here is that we have to get alleles to recombine. It takes a long time to grow a corn plant. If you can just do it in tissue culture, which I don't, I think is quite a biotechnological challenge. I don't think it's um, going to happen anytime soon. But if you really want to move that, that, um, that breeding cycle, and I mean, I don't know if this is realistic at all, but um, it's just a, sort of an illustration of sitting down and thinking about, okay, well, what could we do to make this go faster? In, in, in animal breeding, this actually came from the original 2001 paper on genomic selection where they talk about velogenetics and the, the idea there is that, you know, in animals there's a germline and so sperm cells are, um, are mature before uh, a bull calf is born. And so you could go and genotype the bull calf and if it's one that you want, you can go harvest its sperm cells and um, use it right then. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I don't know, in plants it would probably take something different, but um, always push an idea to the limit is the, is the take home here. All right, so, so now I've, I've talked about accelerating the recombination to the limit. You can, you, it's difficult to do that in practice, but it's easy to simulate. And here I've simulated a situation where I have two cycles of genomic selection per cycle of phenotypic selection. And um, what, what you observe here is that initially genomic selection increases uh, the, um, you know, the mean of the population more rapidly than phenotypic selection. It works better if you have a large training population than if you have a small training population. But eventually, um, you know, you have problems there. Genomic selection reaches a plateau long before phenotypic selection does. And so this is my segue to, to, to talking about managing the population. How do you um, do this while maintaining um, some, some diversity? This is a, a simulation of a closed population. Um, so, so, the, so, you know, the, the problem, of course, is that favorable alleles are being lost more rapidly in, in this genomic selection case. Um, so being high on the y-axis here is a bad thing. And so phenotypic selection is retaining more of those favorable alleles, and genomic selection is losing them. You lose somewhat fewer of them if you start initially with a large training population than a small, but um, nevertheless. So, so then what you want to do is we want to think about, okay, which alleles am I in danger of losing? 
And the answer is the rare alleles. So if you have a rare allele that you think is favorable, in order to avoid losing it, you just want to give it additional weight. And it's relatively easy to, to simulate that process also. And you can compare um, the number of lost alleles, lost favorable alleles, under a situation where you weight those rare ones um, versus just um, using the actual, so, so uh, the actual um, estimated effect of, of um, the alleles. And what you see is that this weighting procedure actually allows you to lose fewer um, favorable alleles under genomic selection than under phenotypic selection. And so a consequence of, I don't know what's going on now. Do I, do I have a way of advancing this without, okay, there we go. Um, okay, so a consequence of losing fewer favorable alleles is that, of course, you have um, better long-term response to selection under genomic than, than phenotypic selection. Now, in plant breeding, there's always a, the possible trade-off between long-term and short-term. You never get better in the long-term without sacrificing something in the short-term. Um, I think it's noteworthy, though, that the sacrifice looks pretty small. So if you look very carefully, these dots are, are actually lower than these dots, but um, it's, it's minimal. So you, you want to sort of optimize this trade-off. All right, so here's what I mean by, by managing the population. Uh, you want to select, um, well, so you want to select uh, lines that are good for the short term, but also valuable for, for future selection. And so what else can I do besides weighting these rare alleles? I can try to optimize the selected set, so I'm not just pick, ranking them and picking the best. I'm actually picking some lines as a function of the other lines that have already been picked. Um, and then something that, that both Jody and Mike set up sort of nicely for me is um, really what, what you want is to identify lines that have rare features that, that may be valuable in the future, whether you know it or not. And so what distinguishes these lines is that, again, they might be more valuable than just their, their prediction or their phenotypic performance suggests. Um, so besides carrying these rare alleles, um, what else might there be? And the argument is that specific recombinations might have value. So, so uh, these are three chromosomes from barley, and it's looking at the number of markers that are in a particular um, recombination interval um, coming from genotyping by sequencing. And what you can see is that there's some, so, so this is a recombination map, so, so the map distance is based on current, uh, current recombination, so that's R. In, in Mike Gore's talk. And you can see that there are some areas that just have a lot more markers than other areas. And, and obviously, these are the um, centromeric areas where you have many more genes per centimorgan or many more, or many more base pairs per centimorgan. So um, all of these genes, you know, they affect the phenotype, and you want to get recombination between them. So if you identify lines with recombinants there, so the other slide is, um, from Mike McMullen's paper in Science, showing that there is more um, repulsion linkages. Uh, so there's presumably this leads to a, a greater um, a greater degree of pseudo overdominance or pseudo dominance um, in in black is the centromeric areas and in hashed is the so the, the chromosomal arms. You want to get those re repulsion linkages to recombine, and that's the argument for saying okay. Um, maybe you want to select in those populations individuals and maintain individuals and use them for crossing ones that have recombinants in those centromeric areas. It opens up uh, sort of new possibilities having that genotypic information. Of course, what you do then, if you actually do that, is you'll start selecting for um, populations that have more recombination. I mean, it's all of a sudden it becomes a selection criterion. You're not just, um, and, and that would presumably reduce this, this problem that, that Jody has observed in, um, in the corn populations. All right, so, so that's the idea of managing the population. And the last thing, this is um, sort of standard linear model that's used for um, genomic selection. And I don't really want to go into this linear model except to say it's sort of goofy reminder of the fact that any equation has two sides. This is the side that I've mostly been talking about that involves markers and predictions. 
but um, you know you need the phenotypes too. And um, as as many people have said, uh, at this point, the phenotypes are the most valuable uh, or the most expensive. I mean, it's flip side of the same coin. A component they they involve a lot of labor or a lot more labor than than the genotyping at this point, and uh, and it can be painful. <laughs> Um, okay, so how do you how do you squeeze the most juice out of those phenotypes? Um, okay, so so again, uh, this is sort of going back to um, some initial thoughts I had about genomic selection a few years back. Uh, the genomic selection is sort of flipping phenotyping on its head. Okay, so in phenotypic selection, the selection criterion is the phenotype, and genomic selection is the prediction. So, and the phenotypes are used to generate the prediction, so they're not used for for selection. Um, Right, so then the purpose of phenotyping changes, and so it starts from being, the, the purpose starts from being selecting lines to going to uh, improving the prediction model. And then what I want to talk a little bit more about, and it's already been um, mentioned, is that the, the unit of evaluation, it, it goes from being the line itself, you want to know what the value of the line is, to wanting to know what the value of marker alleles are. So the unit of evaluation shifts, and, and really, I think that can change um, how you go about phenotyping. And then, um, th sorry, so uh, <laughs> the pagination has changed a little bit. So um, these these should be over here. Um, but the, the point is that when you do phenotypic selection, is there information sharing uh, between the d the different observations that you have? So under pretty standard phenotypic selection, there is no uh, information sharing in the sense that observations that you make on a particular line, they are used to characterize that line, and you don't use those observations to help you understand the value of any other line. Um, in contrast, in genomic selection, since you're working with these marker alleles, and to some extent you, you can also be working with uh, sort of genetic relationships that are inferred from markers, but you, you can take information from any particular line and use it to help you understand the yield or the performance of another line. Um, you can do this across locations. So whether, you're not, whether or not you have the same lines in, in the different locations or not, the information from one location is valuable for evaluating the other location. You can do it across years. So, I mean, Stephen and I were just talking about this, if you have um, a special kind of winter kill that, that, that occurs only once every 10 years, if the alleles were around uh, in that one year that it happened, you're going to be able to share the information from that one year with lines uh, that occur a decade later that are completely different from those that were subjected to um, this particular event. Uh, and, and then you can also, you know, use this to share among programs, and I think for the public sector this is very important and is one of the drivers of the, uh, the Tritici Coordinated Agricultural Project, which I'm a part of, is, you know, to get to leverage each other's um, phenotyping efforts to understand more. So I want to, I, I bolded these, I want to talk a little bit more about these. Um, the notion that what you're doing is evaluating marker alleles and, and, that, and that that has a, uh, an impact on, on the value of replication, um, that idea first uh, emerged in, in, the, in QTL mapping um, work by Steve Knapp, and I just quote this from, from this genetics paper in 1990. Um, so even if you're not replicating the lines, you are going to be replicating um, particular QTL variants. And so to that extent, it doesn't matter um, um, whether you replicate individuals or lines. Um, and so, you know, they showed, so here you have a certain number of experimental units, basically plots. This is a, a figure from the, from the paper. Uh, there are three curves that show different levels of replication. So no replication, there's, there's one plot per individual, um, two or three or, or five, and then this is the power for QTL detection. And, and you can see basically that no replication gives you higher um, QTL detection power. So, Let's transfer this insight to genomic selection, and um, we come up with this thing that, I, that I've called sparse testing. So um, the idea is that any, any plot is going to have a line in it, and no line is going to be in more than one plot. That's, that's the extreme. That's the thing that Stephen said he doesn't like, right? Um, 
So here's replicated testing. You have a certain number of lines, and, and they, they're repeated twice. Here you have twice as many lines. And so, so the outcome of having twice as many lines is that you get to explore the tails of any given distribution a bit more. And so you have lines that are you know, uh, both lighter in color and darker in color than any that you might have when, you have, when you're looking at, at fewer lines. So you can um, do a simulation of this. Um, this is from um, my postdoc, Jeff Endelman. Um, so he, he simulated this scenario. So on, on the x-axis, you have the fraction of the lines that are replicated. So you can have either all of the lines replicated or, or none of them replicated. And on the y-axis, you have the mean of the selected population. So there's a couple things that go into that mean. There's the heritability, obviously, but there's also the selection intensity. And when you don't do any replication, uh, you can increase the selection intensity. And so, what you see, so, so then he did this for, for a trait that had a high heritability on a, on a plot-wise basis and a trait that had moderate to low heritability on a, on a plot basis. And what you see is that uh, when you have high heritability, um, the, the mean of the selected population goes up as you replicate less. Um, so this increased selection intensity is helping you out. When you have low heritability, it doesn't help you out as much. Um, so I don't have actually a really good explanation of why it doesn't work um, at low heritability, but we're sort of thinking about it. Okay, so, so phenotyping experiments um, can change. So then now I want to focus a little bit on this idea of um, information sharing across uh, any number of, of units of the experiment. And um, I have a, Mark Sorrells and I have a grad student who, who works with Lemurgrain Europe. Um, and so he's been able to bring in some of these interesting sort of larger data sets. Um, so in this particular data set, they have about 1,000 lines uh, from a number of environments. They're, they're unreplicated. So this is honest to goodness breeding data. Um, and, you know, barley has very extensive LD, so you really don't need that much um, marker data to, to, to do a reasonable job of making predictions on it. Um, and so what he wanted to do was, was look at how the um, information from one particular environment is going to predict other environments. So uh, these, these heat maps, uh, they have environments both in the rows and the columns. And um, for this uh, left-hand heat map, um, what he's done is he's just calculated um, environmental correlations between, between environments where red is a high correlation and blue is a low correlation. And then he's looked at reciprocal um, prediction accuracy, where he takes the lines from one environment to train the model, and he then predicts the uh, performance in another uh, environment. And you know, there's, it's not all nicely arrayed, but you can see that down here in the corner it's a bit redder, so there's a bit higher accuracies. And, and, and up here, um, it's a bit bluer, so lower accuracies. Um, maybe a more obvious way of doing this is rather than showing these two heat maps is just to plot the two things against each other. So, so here's environmental correlation. You know, so along the x-axis is the value from one of the cells of the heat map that I showed above or before. And then on the y-axis is, is this uh, reciprocal accuracy. And, and you can see this positive. So, so it's not exactly surprising. I mean, if, if the correlation between two environments is negative, you wouldn't expect predictions coming from one environment to do a good job of, um, of predicting another one. But um, it does sort of concentrate the mind on trying to figure out, OK, well, what are these correlations going to be? And in particular, like I said, there's information sharing across all these locations and across years. And here I emphasize years because, OK, so this is some, some research that we did in OATS looking at uh, a validation population that was um, sort of after um, 2001, so recent OAT, OAT varieties, how well are they predicted when you use um, just um, observations from the varieties that were around in 2001 or the varieties that were around from 2001 to 1998. So I'm, I'm making the training population bigger by going back in time, right? And I'm adding. Uh, data from older varieties. And the point is that, that OK, so the um, accuracy that you get by having the larger population, even though it includes older lines, is, is higher than, um, than what you get if you have a smaller, more recent uh, population. 
And the further point then is that um, any particular phenotype that you have on a line, since you're gonna, you, you might use it for decades to come. I mean, I'm not saying that, that that will happen, but it could happen. And so you really need to be careful about making sure that it's a good data point before you decide you're going to let it influence your selection de decisions for, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, okay, so what's the upshot of that is, again, so you just need to think carefully about um, the target population of environments. So you want to make sure that, that those environments that you're using in your training population are, you know, in light of this relationship between G by E and, and accuracy. Um, are actually contributing to good prediction for the average environment that your um, the, the area that you're selecting for is part of. And so we, we have a simple definition, uh, namely that an environment is, is going to be part of this target population if it's predictive of other environments. So this gives us a means of, of uh, ranking environments according to how well they fit this definition. And so you can take that and um, do an initial sort of, uh, sort of simple approach to, to um, constituting the training population, designing the training population to make sure that it's predicting stuff that is useful to you in, in your target. So what we have here is I've, the, the environments are, this is from uh, Nicola Elo is his name, um, the, the Lima Grain grad student. We've put the environments in order um, with the least predictive environments over here and the most predictive over here. And um, in red is an accuracy from cross-validation, where what you do is you eliminate the worst environments progressively, and then you, you do cross-validation on the other environments. And the, basically, the um, accuracy does go up. It goes up pretty slowly. But as you eliminate those uh, environments, it's going up a bit. In, in blue, what we have is how well do the environments that are left over in the training population, how well do they predict the environments that you've eliminated from the training population? And the idea there is that when, when your training population starts to do a good job of predicting the, the environments that you've eliminated, then you're eliminating too much information. So you, know, you sort of look at a graph like this and you choose a point where you say, okay, these environments we're going to eliminate because the um, accuracy is going up a bit. And then we don't want to eliminate any more because at that point, we're, we think we're eliminating useful information. Um, again, it's just a thought about, OK, so how are we going to um, get the most out of these phenotypes? All right, so that's, that's it for the talk. Um, so facts and ideas that I've, I've presented, um, Really, I think the most important part to, to, to remember and, and concentrate on in your breeding program relative to genomic selection is accelerating the breeding cycle. I think that's where its greatest power comes from. Um, I think there's a lot of potential to use all of the information that you get on the, on the marker data to do more than just selection, but to um, manage the breeding program to identify valuable events. Uh, rare alleles or, re or rare recombinants um, that may be useful for, for long-term gain. And um, you know, despite all the excitement about genotypes, I think this is something that people have reiterated many times already, the, the phenotype is, is your most valuable asset. And um, so you know, to the grad students who are here, and, and again, thank you for inviting me. Um, I think you've picked a good field. It's, these are definitely exciting times. And um, as always, I encourage you to sit down and think and um, push whatever idea you have to its logical limit, and that makes it more fun. So if you have any questions, I'm happy to entertain you. Clint. So, I mean, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I can tell you how I did it in the, in the simulation, which is just that, um, so you, don't, you can't observe a QTL allele. So 
That's the definition of a QTL. It's unobserved. Um, so you, you don't know what the minor allele frequency is at any QTL because it's unobserved. On the other hand, uh, a QTL is only going to be in strong LD with a marker if the allele frequencies of the QTL and the marker match to some extent. Um, if the two have different allele frequencies uh, or different minor allele frequencies, they numerically, mathematically can't be in high LD. So you train your model and then you, you look at the marker data, you identify markers that have low minor allele frequencies and if the minor allele for a given marker is has a, an estimated marker effect that's favorable, that goes in the direction that you want, you weight that a little more heavily on the assumption that it's in LD with a QTL that has a low minor allele frequency. And, um, and so, you know, therefore it's one of these things that you want to try to keep in your population. Um, so why would there be uh, QTL with low minor allele frequencies if they're favorable? It could be something that you've just introduced into your population. Um, or, you know, I mean, I mean, Jody showed, uh, or was it, no, actually, sorry, Stephen showed, um, you know, this, this, this chromosome that even though it had a favorable effect, it, it, in some areas it hadn't taken off, right? So maybe it just has a small effect. I mean, there's any number of reasons why you, ha you might have a favorable allele that's still at, at a low frequency. Right. Um, well, so, so the training population might well be on inbreds, um, but assuming that you, you're using something like SNPs that are codominant so that you can, um, you can identify the homozygote of the one allele, homozygote of the other allele, and the heterozygote, then you, you can make a prediction of, of the breeding value of an individual even if it's heterozygous, even if it's outcrossed. Yeah. Okay. So hap haplotypes or so mul uh, markers that are in close proximity to each other. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Um, in principle, haplotypes ought to span a broader range of frequencies. So so it, it might be useful for capturing uh, low frequency uh, marker alleles. Um, one aspect of haplotypes is that they'll be multi-allelic. So you'll, you know, so some of these these mar models that we have, they work very nicely with simple biallelic um, uh, markers, and it'll be a little more challenging with multi-allelic. But um, I mean, I think it's a good idea, and I haven't done it. <laughs> uh, Jim. Mm. Yeah, so, so, so that's one of the strengths of genomic selection, right? The, the, the Beavis effect arises because you evaluate many, uh, many hypotheses, right? And you only pick a few. And so there are two reasons why you're going to pick a particular marker. One is that it is in, it is in LD with um, a QTL. But the other, potentially, and, and they're not mutually exclusive, so they can add to each other. The other is that that marker happened to be correlated to the error structure in your, in your population. So the error is not reproduced and is the source of the Beavis effect, the overestimate of. Um, so in genomic selection, you don't do any of that, um, the selective picking of markers. You estimate every single, uh, an effect for every single marker, and therefore the, um, marker effects that you estimate are unbiased because you're not um, prioritizing some markers over others. Aaron? Oh, right. Uh, 
Um, yeah, that's that's definitely a concern. And so, um, so what wh what can you do to mitigate that? Um, I mean, I'm not sure you can do a whole lot. You you want to always start with as big of a training population as you can. When you have a bigger training population, the estimated effects are going to be at, at markers that are that are closer to the actual QTL. So so recombination between the markers and the QTL won't be as as great. Um, I don't know exactly. I mean, this is something that I, I've been wanting to simulate for a while, but for whatever reason, haven't gotten around to it. But um, it's true that you're doing nine cycles um, of genomic selection per cycle of phenotypic selection. But it's also true that you have a new infusion of phenotypes every year. Uh, I mean, you are going to do phenotyping every year. So. For those of you who may think that, that genomic selection means just selecting on markers and forgetting about the phenotyping, you know, revise that thought, right? The, the, the model updating cycle is critical and you, okay, so there, there's maybe an economic, a budgeting aspect to this that means that you'll do less phenotyping because you have to invest in genotyping, but um, it's obvious from what the companies are saying is that they're not reducing their effort in, in phenotyping and I don't think any breeding program should. So, um, so I mean, the, the answer is in part, I, I'm not quite sure exactly what impact it has, but it, that is a, a, a problem, it's the loss of accuracy of the, of the genomic selection model as, as you use it over many cycles. Dina? Um, so, in standard quantitative genetics, right, the, the genetic variance from a population of inbred lines is, you know, if you only had additive effects, it would be twice that of the variance from a, an outcross like an F2 population. So to some extent, that, that's going to affect what happens if you use um, outbred lines in the training population compared to inbred lines, is that um, there's more variability among among the inbred lines than among the outcrossed lines. And so, um, so, you know, if you think about genomic selection as a big multiple regression, by using inbred lines, you're spreading out the x-axis and that's, that's favorable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess in the training population, I'm all in favor of using um, inbred lines. I mean, there there is always a trade-off between how much time it takes you to do the inbreeding um, relative to how soon you want to get something out. So, um, and then, you know, a criticism of using inbred lines in the, in the breeding cycle, though, is that an inbred line meiosis is, doesn't, is ineffective in, in an inbred line. And so you have to take this extra step of making a hybrid first before you can get any useful meiosis. Um, now, I don't know exactly, I mean, so a number of these different methods, and this is why I'm telling people that I think this is an exciting time to be working on this stuff. I mean, there's a lot of things we can think of that we just don't know exactly what the consequences are. But. Oh, okay, I'm sure. If you guys have patience with me, I'm happy to. So, so I'm thinking, so there's a component of the question that has to do with genotype by year interaction, I think, and how to deal with that. Um, and, and the other part has to do with using LS means to, um, to calibrate things. So that, that last part, I'm not, I'm not following. Um, the, I tried to allude a little bit to the genotype by year interaction uh, by saying, Okay, ultimately what you want is there are many different genotype by year interactions or, or, or going to the marker allele, there's many different marker allele by year interactions and when you estimate the effect of a marker, you want to get something that's kind of the average, the expectation for the marker effects across the, um, you know, the sampling, the, the complete distribution of year effects. Now nobody's ever going to get the complete distribution of year effects, but if you have a sample of 20 years, 
that's going to do a better job of sampling that distribution of year effects than if you have three years, okay? And so if a marker allele is around in your population and segregating for 20 years, by the end of that, you'll have um, a smoothed out expectation over 20 years of that, that marker allele's effect. Uh, when, it's, when the marker allele is in a line, and that line it only transits through your program for three or four or five years, it has a smaller sample. So uh, I think when confronted with genotype by environment interactions, um, there is, again, an advantage of, of looking at um, marker allele effects as opposed to the effects of lines.